I, I think we need a new democracy movement around the tax issue because the way I look at today is here's an economic system being planned by the tech billionaires to throw away most people from work, throw away all farmers from agriculture, take all our tax money to create the infrastructure for them to enslave us to collect more royalties and rents. Yeah? Yes. And this is what goes on in my minds these days, that you know, every the infrastructure of information technology and satellites is all paid for by our tax money, just like the infrastructure of industrial agriculture is paid for by us and our tax money. Welcome to the 100th episode of The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from food, seed, and eco-feminism activist Vandana Shiva. She joined my co-director Dave Chapman on a Zoom call from the Navdanya Institute in Uttarakhand, India. We did capture a few moments of global Wi-Fi lag in this interview, but for the most part, the audio is really good. You'll hear that Vandana, as always, is full of intense devotion to organic agriculture that is of the people, for the people. Welcome, everybody, to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm very pleased today to be talking from across the world with Vandana Shiva. Uh, Vandana is a very well-known food activist, uh, environmental activist, scholar, and anti-globalization author, author of many books, uh, latest two that I know of, Who Really Feeds the World, and Oneness Versus the 1%. Welcome, Vandana. Thank you. So can I ask, were you born a political radical? Did you come from a family of very politically active people? Well, my parents had been extremely active in the independence movement, as every thinking Indian had to be. Um, but, you know, I, you can see the Einstein behind me. I, I just wanted to spend my, my, my life with my head and a piece of paper and a pencil and solve equations. You know, that was my dream of life. And I was a very private person. And I did not choose a public life. I, of course, chose an ecological life, a path with nature, but that it would become so, so, so much a public uh, process with every passing year uh, creating new threats and new challenges and, and in effect, you know, basically harming everything I love, which is nature and people, and, um, and telling huge lies to justify that harm which is what begins with the Green Revolution, carries on it. And even now, you know, if you, I've just finished an interview on the new World Food Program getting the Nobel Prize. Why, why would the World Food Program get a Nobel Prize today? And why at the same time does Jennifer Doudna get a Nobel Prize for gene editing? So you can see at work a whole new food um, system being put in place. I think of it as 1966 for the Green Revolution. Yeah. Borla was given in the 70s. Norman Borla was given a Nobel Prize. And then the whole GMO issue where the molecular biologists were given Nobel Prizes. So, uh, no, I 
I love truth and I love nature and I love life. And if I am a, a public person today, it's because there are massive threats to all of these precious things. Yes, yes. So, so how did your awakening begin? Obviously, you, you studied physics in college, got a PhD, and somewhere in there, you, you turned to appreciate the importance of everything you just said and the importance of food as this central thing that dominates the world one way or the other. Yeah, you know, the awakening did not happen at one step. There are many steps. But the first awakening is I'd finished my MSc honors in physics. I was, I'd started a PhD in particle physics in India. And then I, I realized what I wanted to study was the foundations of quantum theory. So I went to Canada. But before I left for Canada, I just wanted to do a trek in my favorite mountains. I'm from the Himalaya, central Himalaya. And I did this short visit, wanting to, you know, walk in the forest, swim in the stream. And the forest was gone and the stream was a trickle. And at that point, I was leaving for my PhD. But I took a pledge that every vacation I would come back to join a movement to protect the Himalayan forest. And that movement was called Chipko which means to hug. And my sisters in the mountains were coming out and saying, we're going to hug the trees. You'll have to kill us before you kill the trees. And that was continuous for me, 10 years till we got a logging ban in the Himalaya. That logging ban was 81. Around that time, I did a study on the monocultures of eucalyptus financed by World Bank and created a huge uproar. I did a study on mining in in, um, in what be, is my birthplace, my valley, Dune Valley. And I then left university academics institutions and started the Research Foundation for Science, Technology and Ecology. Um, the, among the first things I did as part of this foundation, and in fact, sitting in my mother's cow shed, which she gifted me, she said, don't hesitate. You want to leave a job? Just leave it. Take the cow shed. Start an institution here. So... You know, I started the Research Foundation, which has done so much work from this little place and, um, and my mother's gift. Yes. The Nations <laughs> University gave me, um, you know, uh, had given me a grant to study conflicts over resources. And around that time, Punjab was erupting in violence. So I had said to them, I need to study this. Uh, because I can see there are conflicts over rivers. I can see there's problems over land. But there are many, many, many other layers of conflicts. Because, you know, the farmers had turned out in large numbers and the military was sent to the Golden Temple, the sacred shrine of the Sikhs, which resulted in Indira Gandhi's assassination in 84. Same year, 84, the Bhopal disaster took place in, you know, in the city of Bhopal, Union Carbide. So I said, I have to study why agriculture is killing so many people. What kind of agriculture is this? Because my mother used to have a farm and it was not violent. And it's been fun going picking peas and chickpeas and, uh, and, and working with cow dung to make the, the veranda beautiful. So I've grown up in, in, in beautiful rural life in the forests of, with my father and, and the farm with my mother. But the study of the Green Revolution, which led to the book, The Violence of the Green Revolution, was my first awakening. 
Okay. And I took a pledge. I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do, how I'll do it, but I want to practice a non-violent farming. And then my, you know, search for organic, for chemical-free farming, all is a later evolution and development, but it had to be non-violent. And of course, all the different systems and sophisticated science after all that, I engaged in some of it myself, read everything. But the highest awakening is 1987. Because my book on the Green Revolution, I'm invited to a meeting on the new biotechnologies. And at this meeting, the big companies are all there. It's in Geneva and in Beaujeve in France. And the big companies are saying, the chemical companies, are, we are too small. We must now own the seed. And the way to own the seed is push GMOs and through GMOs take patents on seed and impose this on the world through the trade-related intellectual property rights agreement of the GATT, which became WTO. That's the day I decided to save seeds. And that, if that was 87, this is what I've done. And now all the new debate on the new GMOs, the gene editing, the rush, the huge rush to push it. I'm going back to that meeting of 87 because even gene editing is all about patents. Bill Gates has financed this. Bill Gates has, in a work financed with other investors, a company called Editas, as if life is a word program. And chopping and cutting creates ownership rather than violence against living organisms at the genomic level, at the level of how amazing genetic structures are self-organized. And the rush for patenting for gene editing, immature technique, known already to have huge implications. An experimental technique has been rushed in five years to get a Nobel Prize and been rushed to the market. And this, to me, is the corruption of industrial agriculture, the corruption of the militarized mindset. And this is what makes me do the work I do. Yes. Because it's not to relate to the earth and it's not the right way to, to do farming. Vandana, do you believe when they, when they started the Green Revolution... We've seen many unfortunate consequences. Do you believe that uh, the intention of some of the people was genuine, that they saw this as a way to address hunger? Well, you know, it's not an issue of belief because my study on the Green Revolution was a very detailed research for the United Nations. I read every document in every library of India. In the office of India. So first of all, the, the fact that the Green Revolution was not about feeding the world is so clear in the papers at that time. No one was talking about feeding the world. They were all talking about introducing chemicals to farming and calling an agriculture that didn't have chemicals backward. You know? yeah. And this was being imposed through conditionalities. In 65, we'd had a drought, which meant the prices of food went up slightly. No starvation, no famine. Price of food rose. And our prime minister asked for some more subsidized imports of wheat. And the U.S. government said, we will not send wheat till you change your agriculture. And he said, no, I can't. It's an agrarian society. Norman Borlaug, who also got a Nobel Prize. Yeah. And that's why when you get a Nobel, some people cheer it. I have too much of, of experience of the timing of Nobel Prizes and who gets it and when. Borlaug had worked in DuPont's defense labs. 
And he was pulled out of DuPont's reverse lab and given the job of pushing chemical farming. But because chemicals and the old seeds don't go together, because the old varieties lodge, he then worked on the short varieties, the dwarf varieties, which in fact is... It's losing photosynthetic potential. It is losing biomass productivity. You're actually producing less. I sometimes joke and say, you know, there was a film called Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I always think, when I think of Norman Borlaug saying, Honey, I Shrunk the Plants. And then they, sh they talk about these shrunken plants as producing more. But it's intolerant plants because they have to be, they're designed to be fed by chemicals. And um, Norman Borlaug, I've written about it in my book. He, he wasn't talking about feeding the hungry. He's saying, if I was an MP in India, I would jump every five minutes and say, give me more fertilizers. Give me more fertilizers. It was about pushing synthetic fertilizers, which were leftover war chemicals. Or the same factories that made explosives made the yes. fertilizers, and, and which is why the Beirut blast. You know, they're citing the Beirut blast and the tragedy in the context of the World Food Price Nobel, but they're not referring to the fact that this ammonium nitrate was the reason for the failure of a system of agriculture based on war chemicals and that the explosion brought back the original use, you know, yeah, of ammonium nitrate. So... No, I mean, they're on record. The, the U.S. was very clear. It wanted to have food as a weapon. This was the period Kissinger was saying these things, you know, food as a weapon. Uh, the companies were very clear. They wanted to sell more chemicals. Um, breeding new plants was not part of the agenda. It became necessary because our indigenous seed said, no, I don't want you, you know. <laughs> I said it, it was the Satyagraha the civil disobedience of our wonderful seeds and plants. And the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation had been trying to push fertilizers from the 50s in India, and it hadn't worked till 66, when they used the drought to impose conditionalities. So the conditionalities and the papers of conditionalities are all in the records. This was imposed on India through undemocratic choice. It was imposed on farmers because the farmers were... Uh, had conditionalities. If you didn't buy chemicals, you couldn't get any other loan for anything else. You had to prove you've taken chemical fertilizers to go borrow for your child's education. So bank credit was linked to this. Agriculture establishment was overnight change. And the entire target became pushing more I mean, it became impossible for farmers to use seed. Many parts of the world using old seeds became illegal. I've seen this in Indonesia. Yeah. But Punjab is again, you know, like 84, the Punjab farmers were rising, again rising. They're on the tracks, rail tracks and roads every day because the food and farm laws have been changed again for neoliberal reform, which we have stopped since 91. But the pandemic is creating a political emergency, which is allowing governments to do what democracy would never allow them to do especially in the field of agriculture. You know, I always, you know, I keep saying, okay, there's a virus around. There have been other viruses. But how come so much is being done hiding behind a little virus 
that is totally unrelated to the virus and the cure and the solution, that is absolutely related to pushing the corporate agenda, the billionaire agenda. And on the 14th, David, we are releasing a new report on the Gates empire over food because everyone is only looking at his role in health. But the seed and food, the rapidity with which he's taking over those are our, our fields, you know, and will make it impossible to be organic, will make it impossible to have biodiversity. And that's why all of the energy of the organic movement, all of the energy of the seed movement must now mobilize on the agenda of the five billionaires who are making so much money out of locking people down, you know, just to see the trillions that have been transferred to, um, you know, 76 trillion billion, I think, is the Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos increase. But, you know, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, all got richer during the lockdown. You know, everyone else lost work, 40 million yeah. in the United States, 200 million in India. And, you know, losing, losing work means losing your home. It means losing your food. It means losing everything. And, uh, and I see these as criminal acts, you know, the growing wealth of the billionaires and the increasing unemployment, poverty, dispossession of ordinary people, how people cannot connect those two things, you know, yes. and see that uh, we are entering a phase where the tech billionaires, because they're all tech billionaires, the super rich are tech billionaires. They're invading into every field, including agriculture and wanting farming without farmers, digital agriculture. Monsanto pushed it while it was still Monsanto. Bayer is pushing it. And now Gates is pushing it through a new project that they call Gates Ag One. You know, in Vermont, you have a different farming. Down in the Mississippi Delta, there's different farming. Uh, in the Himalaya, it's different farming. In the the spice gardens of Kerala are different farming. Climates are different. Biodiversity is different. Cultures are different. Farming must be as diverse as the climate, the biodiversity, and the cultures. He wants one agriculture. One agriculture for the world. He controls the seed. He controls the research. He controls the institution. He controls the governments and the decision-making. And he controls the media. People are looking a lot at how he controls the media on the health aspect. Yeah, but he controls the media on the agriculture aspect equally seriously. So let's pause for a moment and just uh, you're you're connecting everything, and I want to go back to the beginning, a little bit of the beginning. So first of all, when you say, "Well, uh, when chemicals are being used, one of the things that that you are very clear about is that the promotion of the chemicals is by very large multinational." companies that that are making a huge profit off selling those chemicals what is the impact for the person who eats the food and what is the impact for the small farmer like like okay what's wrong with chemicals <laughs> so the first thing that's wrong with chemicals is they were designed to kill agriculture had never needed or used chemicals and it's only after Hitler's concentration camps and wars, for which I.G. Farben and the American partners, you know, we shouldn't forget that Monsanto worked with Bayer and had a company called Mobe, that DuPont was very, very present in the I.G. Farben experiments, that Standard Oil had 
a partnership with IG Farb and it was a company called IG Farb and Standard Oil. And I've given these details in the new book, Oneness Versus One Percent from Chelsea Green. So the first thing that's wrong with chemicals is their origin is the intention to kill. They're tools for killing. And this is what Rachel Carson already wrote about in Silent Spring. This is what, uh, because Rachel Carson wrote about more about pesticides and Albert Howard wrote more about the fertilizers, but both tried to wake us to the fact that co companies that had got addicted to making profits for killing people and for war were now wanting to continue to make profits by selling the same chemicals as agricultural inputs. I, you know, I re realized when I would discuss with people, there'd be so many kinds of pesticides and then there'd be so many kinds of herbicides and people just glaze over, you know, and then yes. you take the names of different companies and people glaze over because they just feel this is too heavy for me. I don't understand it. And I remember one, one article of mine, as I said, it's, it's the poison cartel. They're a cartel, they're organized like a cartel and they make poisons. And that's what I've used for this group of companies. Yeah. And yesterday I was addressing the, uh, uh, a region of the German government. He said, what's the most important thing to do for agriculture? I said, please remind yourselves that chemical agriculture is a leftover of the Nazi legacy. And to put an end to that legacy, you must put an end to chemical farming and promote organic. The second thing that's wrong with chemicals is while in the early days of the Green Revolution, subsidies were given to make it affordable, they are ecological narcotics. The more you use them, the more you must use them. So if it begins with one bag of urea, it begins, becomes four and then becomes 18. And the uh, nitrogen response, the scientific data is very clear for India, a kilogram of nitrogen fertilizer used to generate an additional 13 kilograms of grain. And now one kilogram additional of nitrogen fertilizer only contributes three. So it's gone from 13 to three because you're killing the very soil that allowed food to grow and allowed productivity. The science is all wrong. You know, how can you say the soil is an empty container. What kind of science is that? Yes. What kind of science is it when Monsanto can walk into Indian Supreme Court and say the seed is an empty container, it's the chemicals we put into it that make it a superman. They gave this evidence in a hearing where I was part of the intervention. So this idea of empty life, you know, is an extension of the terra nullius of the colonial times, empty land. Mm. Indigenous people aren't humans. It's empty land, we can take it. Seeds that we haven't genetically engineered, empty. We can own it and patent it. Land that is not chemically fertilized, empty land, empty soil. We're waiting for our synthetic fertilizers. What does all this do to the farmer? Because they're ecological narcotics, farmers get into debt. And, and because all the new GMOs are married to the chemicals like Roundup resistant seeds, are designed to use more Roundup, which is why Roundup use has gone up 15-fold in North America since Roundup Ready GMOs were introduced. Yes. Bt toxin is supposed to be an alternative to pesticides, but more pesticides are getting used, and there's now scientific evidence of how they use a synthetic pesticides, because 
engineering a toxin into the plant is the stupidest way to try and control pests. It's a recipe for creating super pests and a failure of having pest control. So farmers get into debt in my country. The debt for BT cotton seeds and the chemicals related to it uh, led to the suicide epidemic. And most of the suicides in the early stages were 85% were in the cotton area, 95% of which was owned and controlled by Monsanto. Um, so farmers get harmed. But these toxics were meant to kill. And yes. they cause harm. So no matter how much the manipulation of the science there is harm. So we know Roundup causes cancer. When the WHO said it, Monsanto attacked. But then cases started to appear in U.S. courts and four cases have been heard and the jury has awarded. And meantime, Bayer has bought Monsanto. But Oh, the other thing is, you know, every scientist knows 5% cancers are genetic. The rest come from toxics in the environment and toxics in our food. Yeah. 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 And when we grow monocultures and we trade them on large scale, the only food we get to eat is ultra-processed food because there too, they make huge money. And it's not an accident that besides pushing gene editing as the new GMOs, besides pushing farming without farmers as his new one ag, Bill Gates is, is pushing fake lab food because that too is a place of patenting. That too, I mean, like Oscar made the GMO soy and they pretend, you know, here are movements that have shown the harm, scientists have shown the harm to biodiversity from GMOs, increased use of chemicals from GMOs. GMOs do not protect the planet. They're selling this impossible burger as a protection of the planet. Ultra-processed foods are not healthy for you. Your gut microbiome knows it. A lab food is ultra-processed food. No one has done the tests of what does it do to your gut microbiome. Yes, we, we seem to be the guinea pigs. <laughs> I, no, I think part of it is I think the, the Americans have lived so long in an industrial food system, a corporate controlled agriculture and a junk food system that the next step just doesn't get the rebellion. Whereas when a Pepsi comes into India, you know, everyone kind of gets a sense, you know, they're doing something to us. So it's a little a bit like the frog, right? When you heat the water slightly, the frog doesn't jump out of the water and dies. But if it's hot water and you put the frog into hot boiling water, the frog jumps out. So, you know, in a way, this, the gradual increase in intensity of the toxification of the agriculture and food system in the U.S. has made it the place where all these trials are done. But India is also because, you know, India's always had a good scientific system. You know, people go to Silicon Valley to run their programs. And so the fact that this age is the age of digital invasion into every sphere of life. You know, gene editing is nothing but digitalization of life. Um, agriculture without farmers is digitalization of chemical production and monocultures. So it is the digital invasion. And therefore, they really want to come to India because we have so much expertise in in information technology in the digital world. And, uh, yeah, 
So, 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 so the organic movement came from India. Yes, it did. As, as a political movement, it came from India. As a scientific uh, knowledge system, also it came from India. So in 1905, and that's the difference between colonizers of today and some true scientists of the British Empire. Albert Howard was sent to India to improve Indian agriculture because colonization means you must improve. And he was the top. There was no agriculture at that time as a discipline had been created. He was called the economic botanist of the empire. And he was sent to improve Indian agriculture in order to prepare more raw materials and, you know, for the empire. And he is sent to Bihar where they're doing indigo cultivation and, you know, other cash crops. I think even poppy for opium trade. Uh, and he arrives and he finds the fields are fertile and he finds that lots of insects, but no pest damage. And so as he writes in his book called The Agricultural Testament, I decided to make the peasant and the pest my professor. Agriculture Testament is called The Bible of Modern Organic Farming, published by Rodale in the United States Soil Association in England. But Howard admits it's the agriculture of India. And why were farmers farming that way? Because for centuries, our indigenous science had said, you do not farm monoculture. So he adopted the principle of diversity and mixtures. He said, you never just take, you give the law of return. Those two principles are the principles of organic farming, diversity and the law of return. Maintain the cycles and never have a monoculture. Monocultures are invitations to pests and disease. Monocultures are, are an invitation to climate breakdown. Monocultures are a recipe for more chemical intensification. So the more biodiversity you have, the more your plants cooperate, the more your plants and insects have an amazingly balanced ecosystem where you don't, you have lots of insects and no pests. So yes, uh, you know, uh, I must tell you this, uh, David, you know, so we built the organic movement in India, rebuilt it. And, uh, and Monsanto was getting very annoyed with me because I, I was also doing the GMO critique and, um, and scientific work on biosafety, but also movement building on Monsanto quit India and we will save our seeds. And then they started to put in the media that Vandana Shiva is importing a foreign technology. She is... Uh, a foreign agent, uh, she is importing organic from abroad. <laughs> and so I decided to start the Howard Lectures, and I did that for a decade. And Prince Charles spoke at these lectures at that time, Soil Association, Patrick Holden used to be the director. And we, for 10 years, we did the Howard Lectures to remind the world that organic went from India to the world. It is not imported to India. That's right. That's right. It was, uh, it was one of the great gifts um, to the world. And, and of course, you know, it's been practiced in many other parts of the world for thousands of years. It was in India that Howard discovered it and brought it back, I think, to the West. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was uh, as you say, the, the peasant and the pest became his, his teachers. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a book, uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen it, Farmers for 40 Centuries, that it early member of the USDA wrote in 1910, where he looked, he traveled around Southeast Asia and he saw land that had been continuously 
cultivated for 4,000 years at a high level of productivity? So I think the, the real true test of good farming is if you do good farming, you stay in the same place because you are regenerating that land. When you do farming as war, you are constantly doing a slash and burn yeah, and, and constantly expanding. That's why, for me, the symbol of the industrialized, globalized agriculture is the burning of the Amazon. Yeah. If you were so efficient, you should have stayed in the Midwest. Yeah. So what, why are they burning the Amazon? What, are they, what, what crops are being grown in the Amazon when they burn it? It's, GMO soya is a very, very big invader because it is the most profitable, uh, n not only because Monsanto generates profits selling the GMO seed. In these 20 years, money has moved into the hands, especially after 2008, where the big financial asset management firms like BlackRock and Vanguard, and I've written about them in my book, Oneness Versus 1%. When I was trying to understand this buyout of buyer, uh, by buyer of Monsanto, and then I realized it doesn't matter which corporation you look, like, look at. You know, they're not buying each other. It's basically the asset management funds who are creating this musical chairs of acquisition. Um, and controlling both and creating new mergers. So BlackRock is the biggest. It used to be a, two years ago, it used to be a trillion. Then it jumped to seven and it increased its wealth during the lockdown. Vanguard is the second big one. Now they make a lot of money through these investments, but the subsidies for biofuel and the subsidies for animal feed are a whole different economy. I think the organic movement and the food movement needs to start looking at subsidies as the only means through which an industrial, inefficient, wasteful system is able to continue to run. It's our tax money that's helping yeah. its run to destroy the planet and destroy our health and destroy the farmers. So we have to have a withdrawal of taxes, you know, um, you know, the non-cooperation that Gandhi did and the non-cooperation that was done by uh, uh, the pond, uh, the, the person who worked on nature, who, who did the poll tax, civil disobedience. Thoreau. Uh, mm. Thoreau. Okay, yes. So Thoreau did a tax disobedience, you know, yes. uh, by saying, I won't pay, you know. I, I think we need a new democracy movement around the tax issue because the way I look at today is here is an economic system being planned by the tech billionaires to throw away most people from work, throw away all farmers from agriculture, take all our tax money to create the infrastructure for them to enslave us to collect more royalties and rents. Yeah. Yes. And this would go on in my mind these days that, you know, every the infrastructure of information technology and satellites is all paid for by our tax money, just like the infrastructure of industrial agriculture is paid for by us and our tax money. And that's what makes it profitable. And that's what leads to the invasion of of uh, of the Amazon, you know, free range cow. 
where does it generate wealth for the extractors? Yeah. But cows in a factory farm in a CAFO fed with GMO soya creates wealth. Yeah. Not only the wealth of the transaction of the commodity, but the subsidies. You know, I really feel the reason so much soya is being diverted to biofuel and animal feed is not because it's more profitable and there's a bigger demand for it. People did not say we want animals and cafos. People did not say we want biofuel. This has grown because the, the subsidies and the extractive profit, extraction of profits in this is so high. You know, if a cow is grazing and it is a herbivore, you know, the grass is for free and the cow is healthy. But if they're in a CAFO and there's GMO soya, the cow is sick, there's medicines, you know, all kinds of diseases, and there's all kinds of monopolies associated with it. That's the reason this grows. Because, you know, I'm actually sitting with my, my book that I did for the United Nations way back in the period of 82. I was mentioning my Green Revolution book. But a bigger book was... Uh, the ecology and the politics of survival. And I want to show you this. So this is what I figured out at that time, right? <laughs> Good organic farming is the earth gives us resources. We produce and we meet multiple needs, right? Yes. Industrialism is used many, many, many resources to create a hugely inefficient system with lots and lots of waste, and for each change, instead of realizing it is adding to the footprint, destroying the earth, and denying us our needs, every change is defined as an innovation. It's yes. patented, and it's imposed. Whereas, as seen as a system, it is a degradation, because you're ecologically inefficient, you're using 10 times more energy, and you're economically more inefficient because you're meeting less needs. That's why the more the industrial agriculture grows, the hungrier people get. Yeah, more hungry yeah. people in the world today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> one last thing before we leave. Um, Michael Pollan uh, once said, food is not cheap. And he was talking about in America. He said it's dishonestly priced because it assumes undocumented workers being exploited and it assumes animal abuse, I mean, down the line. So I think that, that would you agree with that? Well, I would say industrially, globally traded food and hyper-processed food is very costly in terms of the burden on the earth, very costly in terms of the social burden of displacing farmers and exploiting workers. And it is very, very costly in terms of the harm to our health. Yeah? Yeah. So if you take all those costs together, it is definitely not cheap. And cheap food for a costly system is a lie. That's why for me, true organic, real organic is truthful agriculture. So I've done two books. Well, I mean, there are three books around this issue. One is Who Really Feeds the World, available from North Atlantic. Another is report, uh, Assessment, shifting from yield per acre, which is the myth used to impose chemical agriculture. And we measure nutrition per acre, and we could feed two times India's population by not using chemicals, by doing organic and biodiversity and having 
local consumption. So health break and nutrition break are two me true measure. And the third book about the economics of it, we've done a book called Wealth Break, where we've shown, and you know, agriculture minister wrote the foreword because he got so excited seeing that we've done the true cost economics. We showed that for India, chemical industrial agriculture is costing harm to farmers and harm to the environment. $1.3 trillion as much as the GDP. And we did not take into account health because health issues were not so big when we wrote it. On the other hand, organic farmers working on their own with seed sovereignty, food sovereignty, knowledge sovereignty, creating their markets, earn 10 times more with no subsidies, no dishonesty, total fair trade, and I feel that between with Gates coming into the food picture, everything is coming together. Because, you know, some corporations were in food, the Pepsis and the Cokes. The chemical companies and poison cartel was in agricultural production. The cargoes were in the trade. Gates is controlling every aspect of it. And I feel as thinking human beings who love food, love life, love freedom, we must now start to see food in its full integrity and make the choices about food with our full freedom. That will be the test of democracy. Food democracy will be the test of the regeneration of democracy. Yes, and, and one of the things I see that you have shown so beautifully is that we cannot do this without building a movement. You know, that, that we, we have powerful forces trying to keep us ignorant. Absolutely. And they are coalesced and they own the governments, they own the media. So for those who think, if I got one news in New York Times, forget it, they'll have 10, you know. Or if I could have one meeting with the FAO, they've already taken it over. The next year's food summit in New York will be run by Gates and, and his alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa. So they've hijacked every institution. That is why we must build the institutions from the grassroots up. And the movement is no more a luxury. People used to think, oh, those activists go to movement. You want a decent life and you want democracy, you'd better build a movement and be part of a movement. Yes, thank you, that's, that's very right. Um, well, it's, you know, I feel that when you started back in Bhopal and, and you went, what is going on here? You, you, you sort of pulled a string and you followed it a long way and found that an awful lot of things were connected to that string. And, uh, yes, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh my goodness, everything is connected. And you know, a lot of people, when they choose me, anti-globalization, food sovereignty, but they forget that it's one continuous string of yeah. loving the earth, doing the right thing for the earth, which is organic farming, and speaking the truth, which is true science. Now, no matter which part it is, it could be a patent, a GMO, chemical, uh, trade, it is all part of wanting to address a dishonest system by both building movements and first looking for the truth and then speaking the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, um, one of the people who will be in the symposium is Paul Hawken, who wrote a book called Blessed Unrest. And I think that that's a book that celebrates voices from all over the planet, um, not as one unified movement, but as with one unified goal. And, you know, many, many, many movements coming together to try and create an alternative to something that really is not what we want. And I think, you know, one of the things that we struggle with, I have struggled with in the organic movement in America is that um, the, the, the big guys realized that they couldn't beat us. So they, they said, well, we want to be in the picture. And, and they started to sculpt what organic meant in the marketplace, not, not to persuade shoppers of what they, you know, eaters of, of what they wanted, but just to be in the picture and say, I, I'm with them. And, and, you know, so this, this effort for greater integrity, greater transparency is ongoing. You've talked about uh, agroecology as the unifying umbrella for, you know, organic and, and uh, you know, regenerative and all these, all these positive agricultural movements. But even that name I've seen starting to be taken over. There's no name that we will come up with that they won't claim. But David, that's why I think Indian civilization was so super brilliant. They never gave one name to anything. They gave a thousand names. So that co-option could not happen. So the Ganges has a thousand names. The the divine god, the creative force of the universe has a thousand names. Lalita you know, the one who plays is one of her names. That she plays to create creation. Uh, look at anything. We have hundred names, thousand names. The other day there was a ceremony uh, for you know my parents, and our name Shiva. You know, which they adopted to fight caste. Shiva has a thousand and nine names, thousand and eight names. You know. So the more you pluralize, the more you defend democracy. Yeah. The more you reduce yourself to a, a monoculture linear phenomena, the more you can be attacked and co-opted. So for me, diversity is not just the principle of life. Diversity is the principle of resistance and resilience. Yes. I and, agree. And authenticity and integrity. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it, it, as we look forward, you, you have imagined a circular economy. Could you describe that for people who don't know what that means? Well, you know, the circular economy, in a way, grew out of the law of return yeah. in Harvard. And I've just done a forward to the English version of Leap Six. Um, recycling of in agriculture, you know, in 1876 or something, or 96, I don't know, he wrote a book on recycling. He was so angry at the commodification of his knowledge, you know, of the nutrients. And he thought of nutrients as recycling. And they adopted it into selling commodities, you know, guano first and something else. Some, and then later, it, uh, I think the synthetic fertilizers came after his time. But he already laid it all out. And the beauty of it is 
He is the one who creates the land of metabolic rift, the separation of that which should be related. And this was then adopted in many, many ways by many, many philosophies. I use it to describe climate change. I said, you know, it's the metabolic disorder of a living planet. So what is then the healing of the living planet? Heal the cycles. So circular economies for me is with the seed. Monsanto wants you to not save seeds. The circular economy of seed, the seed should give rise to seed because seed gives you food and it gives you seed. And this has been the war of industry against the life of seed. The farmer shouldn't save seed. Circular economy of seed is to have your own seed. Let the seed be seed. But the circular economy of seed is what we've done with the uh, community seed banks. That seed should move between people. That's how it's been distributed forever. Yeah. So that's a circular economy. The community seed banks uh, giving back to the earth, the law of return, organic farming. And only true organic gives back. Yeah. You know, your high-rise farming with, with the gels is not giving back. It's still taking. It's, it's energy intensive. It's still trying to cheat nature. And every time people, you know, so many people who want to do good agriculture then come to me and say, but what do you think of hydroponics? What do you think of this? I said, for me, the test of any good farming is, is there a soil that you're giving back to? Because if you're not giving back to Mother Earth, you're not farming. You're doing industry in some way or the other. These are factories, you know. And Bell Jeff Bezos, after he bought Whole Foods, is creating a huge vertical fake plant place to, to service. And he's got a very strange name for it, again, to create the illusion of freshness and, you know, and, uh, and plants. You can look like a plant without having all the nutrients that only the soil can give you. You can look like a burger, but if it's not meat, don't pretend to be meat. You know, I think money making and the greed of capital and the extractive economy has made everything, it, it, it forces everything to be dishonest in order to extract. In the circular economy, everything is honest because you're a community. Everyone knows you. You can't cheat on your seed. You, the farmer who took your seed and saw it grow in your field last year, you can't cheat him or her. I've grown the food. You're eating it. You know my farm. We won't cheat each other. That's the circular economy of food. The circular economy of, uh, of building living economies is our relationship to the earth. We need a circular relationship with the earth where we're constantly giving back in gratitude. Extractive economies we're taking and we're taking and we're taking. And that will be the shift in the human mind to shift from extractivism that leaves the earth poorer and the people poorer to a gift economy, a giving back where the earth is regenerated and distributed wealth enriches all. We should use the corona crisis to move out of the centralized control where if you keep taking and taking and taking and taking, then you get this 1% where 50 trillion has moved from the body, 99%, to the top, and it becomes an inverted pyramid. 
which will topple any time. It'll topple because of inequality. It'll topple because of hate and violence on the street. It'll topple because of intolerance. It'll topple because of a climate disaster and fires in California. It will topple. It cannot last. An inverted pyramid cannot stand, but circles can expand. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Do you think, you know, we... Uh, in my little corner of the world, we, we work very hard to promote the Real Organic Project. Do you think this has hope? Do you think that this is something that people will respond to? I, I absolutely. I mean, all, all evidence is showing that, first of all, with the pandemic, people shifted more to local and organic. And local organic is real organic. Because why would you try and cheat in your community, you know? So... Because the other stuff, just like GMO soy in the Amazon is a hugely subsidized enterprise. Animal feed in factory farms is a hugely subsidized enterprise. All of this farming without soil is hugely subsidized. It cannot work on its own because there's nothing regenerative in it. There is absolutely nothing that recycles itself. You know, maybe water, water might move in a hydroponic farm. Yeah, but, but, there is, there's no life being regenerated on its own as a self-organizing principle. So I feel, David, the, the next steps are going to be real organic and fake organic, real food and fake food, real knowledge and fake knowledge. Um, and this, to me, will be the truth and the satyagra. You know, I use the word satyagra very much in the Gandhian spirit, the force of truth. Food is where most lies have been told. Food and agriculture where most violence has been perpetrated. But good farming, real organic, can be the place where we bring nonviolence back into the picture. And that nonviolence then brings truth back into the picture. And for me, real organic is, is farming with truth for truth, for health, for life. Thank you. Um... I, I I don't know that we can do any better than that. That's that's a, a wonderful place, perhaps, to end our conversation. Well, I'm glad after the early bit of a little sound loss, it all came back. Yes. Yeah, and we could talk. Yes. Nice so. talking to you and all strength to you. Yes. <laughs> I remember right. the T-shirt. Yes. <laughs> that that was wonderful when you held up that T-shirt. Uh, Actually, it was, uh, you know, we were still keep the soil and organic back then, but it, it really uh, lifted people's spirits. Um, you know, we, we, keep, we keep working and working at, at uh, bringing attention to what's going on because it seems like such a, you know, there's such an opportunity for uh, organic farming to help lead the world in so many things that are needed now. So one, one final thing I will, I have you. So, you know, the Indian food system is being dismantled. But in the process, very quietly, they want to appropriate organic. So all these big companies, you know, that come in and aggregate and, you know, the Amazons, the Walmarts, etc. Um, they're ag aggregators and intermediaries, and they work through many. So I managed to get an exclusion in our law that farmers selling directly to consumers should not need third-party certification, which is very, very costly. And we got that exclusion. 
So they're trying to sneak in that intermediaries and aggregators, the giant firms who are not organic, don't have to be certified, but they can use an organic label, which means again bringing dishonesty to organic. The interesting thing, they attack organic, but they want the label, you know? Yeah, that's right. They, they attack organic, but they want to be organic. And if they hated us so much, why don't you just create another name for yourself? Why don't you just call yourself the poison cartel food, you know? <laughs> or, and, uh, you know, just put the poison cartel label on your food. So I'll send this so that, you know, you can get all our friends. I, I, I'll send you a draft with the address and the facts, but you construct your letters. It would be good for the Indian regulatory system to realize these things get noticed by the organic movement worldwide. And you can call it, you know, keep organic organic or whatever you want to do. And uh, um, I'll send it to you next week. Yeah. You're right. Thank you so much, Vandana. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 100. Please join us next time when our guest will be Liz Carlisle, author of Healing Grounds and co-author of Grain by Grain with Real Organic Farmer Bob Quinn. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org. 